One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello dear listener and welcome back to season four of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me Caroline Foran. I cannot believe we are four seasons in to kick off this brand new series of which there will be 15 amazing episodes if I do say so myself that makes world-class experts on anxiety in with everyday people's anxiety stories as always. I am joined by the incredible Brian Penny. Now, I don't need to give him much of an introduction because his story of overcoming adversity just speaks for itself. Brian is a recovered addict. He's the author of the phenomenal memoir, Bonus Time, which I urge you to read. And he's now undertaking a PhD, spending his time educating people on psychology and neuroscience. And at the root of all that Brian has been through, you will find anxiety. So he shares his story of anxiety here with me. I don't doubt that his story will resonate. He has a wonderfully realistic relationship with anxiety these days. And he also has some wonderful resources available to others via his website, which is brianpenny.com. And that is B-R-I-A-N-P-E-N-N-I-E.com. I really hope you enjoy it and welcome back. Brian, thank you so, so much for being a guest on season four of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. I have been so looking forward to you and to to chatting to you. And I've had so many people who have read your book um, who have said, you have to talk to this guy, like he would be perfect. Your story, from what I hear, is incredible. Now, full disclosure, I haven't actually read it yet myself, but it is next on my list. And so I just want to start by saying a massive congratulations on the launch and the success of Bonus Time. Thanks so much, Caroline. And I'm delighted to be here. I've been dying to chat to you. A good friend of mine uh, seen you speak in Primark a while ago, and she was saying, oh, you've got the link up with Caroline. So it's great. It's great to be finally linking together today. Oh, amazing. That's so nice. I always feel like no one is ever like paying attention at those things or, you know, with your own podcast, you think maybe your mom is listening if you're lucky, but <laughs> that's nice to hear. So you have an incredible story and I want you to tell it to me. So if we can just go back to the very beginning and before we were, we started recording there, you said it goes right back to birth. Is that right? It goes right back to birth, Caroline. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's an, it's an interesting one. I, I only realized this after writing me memoir, writing me book, um, in, in the summer, how big an effect this, the big an impact this had on me. So when I, I was born with a condition known as intestinal malrotation, which in layman's terms, it simply means that my guts were twisted, my intestines were twisted. And after a week and, and um, I wasn't eating, food wasn't going well, uh, milk wasn't going down well. And my mom kept on bringing me back to the hospital and they, the doctors just thought it was colic. And she was a young mother at the time and she they were sort of like, they were treating her like a silly young mother. It's colic, it's okay, it's okay. 
So a couple of, I think two or three weeks went by and barely any nutrients getting into my body. And um, my mom just remembers I was like limp and frail and uh, like I was actually dying. She didn't know that at the time. So she brought me into the hospital for the last time and um, they basically weighed me and I was only like three pounds. I'd lost over half of my birth weight and they knew they made a huge mistake. So it was literally ambulance jobs, police escort, rushed over, I think it was Harcourt Street Hospital at the time, emergency surgery. And this might shock you yourself, Caroline, it shocks a lot of people when they hear this. But back in 19, uh, I was born in 1978. So back in 1978, the, the medical practice at the time understood that infants did not need a general anesthetic. It was only in 1985 when there was a woman in America realized her, her infant baby had heart surgery without general anesthetic. There was a huge outcry. And he realized that he made this massive boo-boo from 1940s neurological evidence on pinprick. And so it was a huge mistake that he made wow. for years. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So I basically went under the knife without a general anesthetic. Oh, my God. And I know. It's, cra- it's absolutely crazy, isn't it? It's, it's really, I'm rubbing my scar on my stomach now. Like I still struggle with a bit of trauma around that. I've done a lot of work around that myself. But um, basically, I, I had a lot of complications. I survived. Yeah, I was only given 5% chance of living, but I survived the operation. And I had complications from that operation as well. And um, for basically, I remember my aunt saying to me, my mom, literally for the first 18 months of my life, I cried. I like 24-7, I cried from pain of the complications. And since I've gone back to study psychology, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a PhD in Trinity around this kind of stuff as well. And what I've come to learn and what I've come to realize is that I was literally primed for a life of anxiety, to mm-hmm. fear the world, to fear my environment. And that was, that was the starting point for me. To, to, to experience anxiety and, and uh, uh, I suppose it was the path is uh, set the path for the rest of my life oh my god so like the minute you were born you were facing all these threats your body was in protection mode and your 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 little mind wouldn't have even had a hope of understanding anything like that was going on so of course that was gonna that was gonna set the tone and then what was it like growing up then growing up for me so I, I always say that now I, I came from a very loving family a very loving parents but it was um it was a problematic home as well it was alcohol in the home um, an alcoholic home I suppose and what I remember we had no language for anxiety back then especially I was only a kid at this stage I didn't even know what it was but I just remember being a very restless, agitated and worried child. I worried about everything. I used to describe like it's sirens in my head. Mm. I was always, I remember one memory specifically, I was watching a World War film with my dad and a siren went off, I think it was the Vietnam War. And I remember the next day I was playing up in my room and I heard a similar noise and I thought World War III was happening outside and I was running down to tell everyone about it. Very, very maladaptive kind of uh, thinking patterns and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there was one specific memory that I think had a huge impact on my life as well. It's, it was a memory of over a couple of years. And I, I just, my mum and dad were, were drinkers, as I said. But back then as well, there was a lot of drink driving went on. So I, I was a very, I was very aware as a kid, like from the ages of six to nine years of age. I just remember from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, my mum and dad going to the pub, driving. I'd, I'd start my window watch at about 10 o'clock, waiting for them to come home. And I just remember when every car that came down the road, hoping it was them, hoping it was them. It wouldn't be them. They wouldn't get into about two in the morning. And I just remember the anxiety that used to go through my body. So that's one of the biggest memories for me as, as a kid growing up. And I think it just shaped me towards a life of anxiety. I was very sensitive towards anxiety from the earlier experiences. And that just really made the situation a lot worse. 
And, and people really underestimate the uh, impact of experiences at around that age. And, you know, you, an adult might just say, oh, don't be silly, don't be ridiculous. But I mean, I'm sure you've you've learned this yourself as well. And, and looking back on, on my childhood, I would, you know, I now realise and understanding the brain better. And for me, it's it's so eye-opening to, to realise that your ability to have stored those long-term memories and have that fear response was well in place before you had the ability to like rationalise and tell yourself it's it's okay because that hadn't, that part of your brain wasn't going to really develop until a few years later. So those things really like kind of, I guess, woven, they were woven into the fabric of your your being. And it's so, it, it sets the tone for, for life. If we don't understand it and we don't intervene at that time, no wonder so many of us are walking around with slight traumas of things that seem so innocuous from childhood. Yeah, 100%. It's like there was a, there was a great book I read, I think, the, the Body Keeps the Score. And like yeah. we're conditioned, it goes into the body. And it was a, there was a lovely, a lovely line I heard as well. Congratulations, you survived the war. Now live with the trauma. So, so you, have to, you, you probably got over that experience and adults are saying, don't be silly. But that trauma is in your body. Like I do a lot of public speaking now and I still get a little bit anxious sometimes. I, 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 as I, we're going to be chatting about that, I have a wonderful relationship with anxiety today. Mm-hmm. But I still feel it in the body. But it's not blind right now. It's 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 the conditioned self that was traumatized in the past that's where it's really coming from yeah so you're about eight or nine at that point you're definitely already have a very kind of hyper vigilant mind um and your your body's always erring on the side of caution take me then forward to what was going on in your life and what was what was the driving force behind where you ended up going down the route of 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 taking drugs yeah, it was funny for me. So I, I always had, I've always had great self-belief in my abilities, even though I ended up as a heroin addict for 15 years. I, I, I had great self-belief. Like I, I was fairly academic in school. I, I, was, um, I was a good footballer. So I either thought I was going to be a footballer or I was going to have a good career. That, that's where I was at. And when I was 14, I came from a pretty, I used to call it, it was a very disadvantaged area in fairness, very drug-riddled area, robbed cars, violence. But I didn't see myself in that setting, I wasn't one of them, as I used to say to myself, I wasn't going to be robbing cars. But, and, and I'd never smoked cigarettes. I remember my friends were smoking cigarettes. I was like, no way would I smoke cigarettes. That's, that's stupid. Ruin me, me football career. That was my mindset. Mm. But I had an injury when I was 14 and I didn't play for a couple of months. And I must have been getting curious about drugs at that age as well. Because I remember on the football dressing room, the, the room for the football dressing rooms where I'm messing around, I'll never forget it. And my friend Alan turns around and says, oh, the head buzz you get off these cigarettes. And I was like, oh, head buzz. Oh, I wouldn't smoke because it's dirty, filthy. And it affects me, me career. He spit me football career. But I wouldn't mind a head buzz. And it always sticks in my head, that is. And I remember I was a big Samson roll-up uh, tobacco cigarette. And I took a puff. And I loved the little head buzz. That was my starting point for drugs. And my brother Calvin was smoking hash at the time. And I knew that. I was aware a couple of me older friends were smoking hash as well. And within a couple of weeks and months after that, I was smoking hash, I was taking tablets. And I believe it was just, it gave me a sense of relief to get away from the, this sense of restlessness, the sense of uh, anxiety that I felt. I started drinking at 15, 14, 15. And it just took me away from me, took me away from the anxiety. Didn't realize it at the time. Now, I started getting into harder drugs then as well. And then when I was 17, I, I dabbled in methadone, not realizing it was a heroin substitute at 16. But I'd start dabbling when I was early 70 and I, st- I took heroin for the first time. And that was that was literally the game changer for me. It was, I remember that experience. There's a, there's a chapter in my book called Fallen in Love and it's literally my first night talking about um, doing heroin. And I just remember it was like, I describe it as like a soft, warm blanket was just wrapped around my soul. And it was like a voice came into me. It was just like, 
keep me close, I'll protect you. And that was just, that was game over for me. I, I didn't get addicted straight away, but I was mentally addicted and I was going to keep that close for the rest of my life. I'm always so curious about um, addiction to, to drugs and when you hear, but you, you know, obviously when you're in the throes of addiction, it's it's completely understandable that it's it's not something you have much control over. But when you made that first decision, being as aware and smart and like you say, academic and everything and, and knowing that, that cigarettes would affect your career, or, do, do you remember knowing consciously that you're potentially going to go down and like a path that you couldn't go back from which you you obviously have come back from and and deciding I don't care anyway I'm going to do it yeah so this is the thing people people that hear my story think it's a story and, and read the book probably think it's a story of addiction and it is to an extent obviously but I would say it's more a story of self-deception there's a line in, in, in my book that really captures the essence of, of what I was like all the way through, through my adulthood. And I was a black belt in self-deception. I could cross any boundary or take any action by telling myself a lie and believing it. So I really believed the stories that I told myself. And my story was, I'm not a real addict. I, have a, I used to tell myself, I had a secret that you can do. If you're like me or you're not like real addicts, you can do heroin once a week or twice a week and get away with it. And nearly thinking other people are silly. So I fed myself these lawyers, which are like preposterous now, really crazy lawyers now. But I fully believed these lawyers in the moment that, that protected me and allowed me to go deeper into addiction without realizing that I was getting into serious, serious trouble. Yeah. And were you conscious or were you aware at the time at the beginning, you know, when you say you had that feeling of that comfort blanket uh, in the drug experience, were you aware of what that feeling was masking for you or what it was solving for you? Or was it just like this feels good? Or did, did that only come later that you realized it was it was anxiety? Because it it sounds like you just kind of always were an anxious person and then this made you feel a little bit less like an anxious person. Yeah, that, that's it. You've nailed it there, Carolina. I remember, so that, that would have been in 19, um, let me think, 1978. So 1995 around, I would have been in 95, and I don't think it was a language. I certainly had never heard of anxiety at that stage. Oh, God. And yeah, definitely. It wouldn't have been, yeah. And I remember, so I, I got, I started dabbling in heroin when I was 17, and I, I think it was 19 or 20 when I, when I, like I was doing, I started to do coke. I was starting to do a lot of other drugs at this time, partying and everything else. And I was making myself much worse in, in, in the anxiety stakes. And I had my first panic attack when I was 19, and it was a, a, a horrific experience. I thought I was dying. I didn't think it was didn't know what a panic attack was at the time. And I remember going to the doctor and him telling me it was I, I struggled with anxiety. That's a psychological thing. And I was like, anxiety, what is that? I didn't even know what it was. And mm-hmm. I remember he, he gave me Valium at the time to help me with the anxiety, but I was already taking a lot of drugs and taking heroin at the time. But it gave me the realization that drugs were the solution for this as well. But that was really my first realization that I was masking something underlying that. But I didn't really fully realize that up until, up until I got clean and yeah. I'd go as far as saying that yeah yeah and then so you're you're 17 around are you fully addicted at this point no so 17 I, I was there was two years of uh, dabbling in heroin and like like military precision I would use it me and my best mate he was still on the streets and um, he's still on the streets he's still deep in addiction and basically we'd use it with military precision so we wouldn't get strung out in inverted commas like we weren't real addicts we'd never get strung out 
And I think when I was 19 at 20 and I had that panic attack and I remember going to the doctor and he, he gave me the value. He wouldn't give me more volume because I was looking for more volume. And I remember making a decision. Like I'd, I'd never, it was like, right, well, I, I know heroin helps this now, so I'm going to have to do heroin. You're not giving me the drugs. So I nearly blamed the doctor. And so when I was 19 and 20, that's when I got fully deep into addiction and when I started getting physically strung out on, on heroin and developing um, physical physical withdrawal symptoms and having to do it on a much, much more regular basis. And how did that impact your life at the time then? It's crazy. And a lot of people struggle to understand this and it's more common than you think. So I was a functional addict for some, nearly all of me, well, I wasn't, I, I, I thought I was a functional addict for m- m- most of my addiction. <laughs> when I talked to people that, that, about that, he says I wasn't very functional at all. But I held down a job for pretty much all of my addiction. And for the first 10 years, because I didn't think I was a real addict, I didn't really act like a real addict. So I was a registered addict from the age of 22, I think. So I was on a methadone program. I was giving urines once a week. I was drinking methadone and the chemist once a week. Still doing heroin every day, by the way, because the methadone program doesn't work. So that was just an extra an extra way of making sure that um, I, I wouldn't be dying sick and I, I could go to work still. It was it was a relentless grinding and slow process in my in my 20s all of my 20s of just grinding me down but i still tried to live the other life i still try to does it i always say it was like two worlds colliding so it was like one world the the, the, the real me was the anxiety ridden me that was doing heroin on the sides trying to keep it away from everybody and then there was the outside and me that, that the outside self that i tried to show everyone else that life was grand i was okay i was working a job the the, the, the story that was protecting the addiction so as long as i kept that facade I was protecting the addiction so it was this it was self-deception I was deceiving everyone else I was lying to everybody and it was only a matter of time before that really collapsed and that, that really started collapsing then at the, at the end of my 20s and my 30s I, I, got, I, I started selling drugs I started bringing a lot of problems to my house me, I, me, 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 me mum's house got burnt down the front of the house got burnt down over problems I brought to the house like I had to move out so it start, I started becoming the stereotypical problem that you would expect around people in addiction then after that and you say that you you were successful in kind of concealing, deceiving yourself and deceiving everyone else around you. Was there anyone who called you out on it, who really cared about you at the time, who who, who made you, and I'm, I presume you would have reacted badly to that, but who could see the wood from the trees when you couldn't? Yeah, there was, there was a couple of people and it was it was even in the clinic. Um, it was like, a, I, they, they used to say to me, it was very, it was very tired to, to just talk to me. It was like a, a verbal diarrhea just came out of me. It was like a machine gun. So I had this ability to protect my addiction with BS, basically. Mm-hmm. So I remember my mom and my sister and my best friend trying to talk to me at times. But I always had these defense mechanisms. Like I was always, I always had these stories. I'm getting off methadone. I only use it to, to soothe anxiety. Look at this. I'm down to this amount of milliliters. I'm down to this amount of tablets. I, her, I pretend I was never doing heroin. That was my own little secret. So I was saying, I'm, I'm on a methadone program. I'm trying to get off. I'm trying to look after myself. So I had this whole a complex network of lies and deceptive stories to get people off off my case and, and that's did, that's what it was did you did you want like you're saying all this like oh i'm doing this i'm, I'm in the clinic like did you actively want to improve things or were you just saying i've got to do this to keep people off my back but i'm quite happy continuing as i am 
Yeah, it's 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 a it's a funny one. It's I, I I'm big, and so my my whole thing is it's about the stories we tell ourselves. Like I like my my career is going to be down along the lines of self talk, negative thinking, all of this stuff, and the the, the impact of la- the language we use, especially when we're talking to ourselves and, and and the emotion. Like language is a vehicle for emotion. So I'm all about the stories we tell ourselves. And what what I've come to realize was that I we we have many stories. Obviously, we have many narratives that we tell ourselves. But my major narrative was this. I cannot cope with anxiety and I made heroin to survive. So I didn't think there was another way out. I, I, I got myself into a hole and I didn't think there was another way of living. Obviously, as the anxiety was getting worse and I was doing more drugs, it was like a snake trying to eat its own tail. Like it was making it worse and I was trying to do it to make it better. But I just didn't think there was a way out. I was getting deeper into debt. So I had to try to keep my job. I had to try to sell more drugs. But everything was getting worse, but I just couldn't see a way out. So I didn't even go there would be the answer. I didn't even think it was possible. What was the turning point? I mean, how bad did things have to get before you arrived at that point yourself where you said, okay, I, I can't, I can't feel myself or anyone anymore. Yeah. And this is, this is, um, this is, this is the defining point of my life, Caroline. I remember, so it was in, um, it was August, 2014 and I pretty much lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my mind. I went to the form of psychosis to an extent in and out of psychosis, crazy thinking. I lost my health. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the before or after pictures. Like, yeah. sure I look like a different person, yeah. Completely different um, person. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I lost every important relationship in my life. And I, I remember realizing, right, I, I still didn't think I could get off drugs because I didn't think I could survive without them. But I remember saying, right, I'm going to have to get clean. I'm going to have to try to go to a detox center and do something else. And I was like, I have to do something. And I went to the old clinic and I tried to get um, get into a detox center. I remember thinking, I'm going to do some, I'll, I'll get out and I'll do some drugs, but I'll try to control it better. That was the new story I was telling myself. Mm-hmm. And I went to the detox center and they told me I couldn't get into detox with benzodiazepine in the system. There was one place I could go, but I'd have to wait six weeks. But I, I was nearly dying at this stage. Like, I think my body was giving up and I was really, really in a bad way. And there was something within me started saying, you need to do this now. You need to do something now. Like, I'd lost my job. I'd lost... I, I lost any way of earning money and I owed out like tens of thousands to money lenders, drug dealers. To, I, 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 I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. I says, right, I'm going to have to do this now. And I remember saying, right, I remember in the, in the clinic and saying, right, I'm going to do a home detox. And they says, don't do that. It says, you'll have a seizure. You could kill yourself. You'd be in a bad way. And I says, look, I have to do this now. So I tried to do a home detox, trying to get off the benzodiazepine so I could, they'd be out of my system so I could get into a detox to get off the opiates. And what did that involve, a home detox? I'm just sitting at, sitting at home um, in, 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 in pain, waiting for, waiting for benzodiazepines to come out of my system. Jesus. Yeah, crazy. And what, what I'll describe is that two days into that home detox, I'm in the sitting room. I'm moving into a new apartment now next week, but I'm in the sitting room. I'm in the kitchen right now of the house, and the sitting room is right to me, right to me, to me right-hand side. It's, it's, it's how I started my book, actually, with the prologue. And I described that night, two days into my home detox, I described that night as not only the most painful night in my life, but the most important night in my life. And two days into that home detox, I woke up and we sitting on the floor and there was blood everywhere. And in what, what the detox um, facility said, I actually did have a grand mal convulsive seizure. So what happens when a, a convulsive seizure, with a convulsive seizure, is that every neuron in your brain, I had a grand mal one, so it's every neuron in my brain, like a cascading effect fired at the same time. So my muscles were all convulsing, all my sensory senses were convulsing, and I'd actually driven my teeth through my tongue, so I pierced the center of my tongue with my teeth through the convulsion, and that's where all the blood was coming from. And I remember my brother came into the room, my younger brother came into the room, he thought I was dead, he rang me dad in a panic, I think Brian's dead from withdrawals, and... 
I was brought to the hospital. Thankfully, I wasn't dead. Ambulance job. It was a horrific scene, and it was horrible for the whole family, who, who rallied around me after me, tormenting them for years. So I owe so much to the family. I really do. But the moment in the hospital for me that changed everything, I was, I was lying, I was in a room on my own, lying on, lying on a trolley. And like, with, like basically, when you do drugs to escape anxiety, it, like if they help you to escape anxiety, withdrawal is the opposite of that. I, I describe it like a spring being wound really, really tightly and, and the withdrawal is like an unleashing of that spring. So I remember just being in, on the trolley, just trying to jump out of my own skin. And I was just emotionally, mentally and physically broken, like physically from, from the seizure and my tongue was so sore. But what I'll never forget is that I tried to get up off the hospital trolley and my eyes just landed on this fire extinguisher. Now, it was a red fire extinguisher and it, not to me that night, which was really crazy. And I remember just being sort of transfixed and lost, like tunnel vision, looking at this fire extinguisher. And I remember saying, right, it's a fire extinguisher and that's the colour red. But I tried to put it together and it says that's a red forex and it was like the world of me verbal world didn't make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I already described it like links of the chain that I knew should go together, but I didn't know how to connect it anymore. And I remember just looking around the room, and it was like nothing really made sense verbally anymore. And I started I, I started to panic saying, Oh my god, am I brain damaged? Is this brain damage? And I remember just sort of leaning back on the trolley in this sense of I wouldn't say calm, but it was a sense of I can't do this. I don't, I just can't do this anymore. And I, I, I surrender. It was a sense of surrender. And I believe that was the moment that changed my life. I stopped fighting with reality. I stopped fighting with my own mind. And I dropped the story that I told myself. And I think that was the defining moment where I was able to tell myself a new story and do something else with my life. And from there, for me, that was the moment when my life completely changed. Wow. What was, what was scarier to you? The idea that you could potentially continue down that path and, and, wake up dead or was it scarier to think of okay I have to confront these demons now I'm gonna have to feel the full brunt of this anxiety when I've had a, a perfectly good um I guess mask for it this whole time which one of those was scarier to you yeah it was funny that's a great question actually and and, and fear I think I think my fear I think fear had sort of left me at that at that stage Carolyn for me it was at that stage, it was all about confusion. Obviously, fear is the underlying, is the underlying emotion of it all. But it was a sense of confusion. I didn't know where I was going. I had no sense of direction anymore. And if I, if I was to say anything, I would say the fear of staying in that mindset. I just knew it didn't work anymore. It, it, it didn't work anymore. And it, it, it's, it was the fear of not knowing another way out. So I only had one way to go, and that was getting clean. I don't even know if that answers the question. It's it's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me to answer that. I have to say. No, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, it's perfect. Um, so so then you're on. You're at. I guess the day one of of mentally realizing. Okay, I've got a massive journey ahead of me. Physically, you've got to claw yourself back from the brink of very very being close to to, to dying. Where did you find the strength and and how was the experience and how long did it take and and, and did you ever feel like giving up along the way? No, and and this this is where I'm eternally grateful for for my my journey, and I I just feel so lucky that 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 for what actually happened to me. So I I, I had another four weeks after that seizure um, at home waiting for the benzo diazepam to come out of my system. Another seizure, another hospital visit. That was uh, the toughest month of my life, to be quite honest. Then I went to a detox facility on a farm up in Nall, and I spent five weeks coming off heroin, but. 
around coming off heroin, my first, first day clean was the 8th of October 2013, and there was something, there was a shift, a huge shift in me being around that time. It was like an, an energy was coming into my life. Mm-hmm. I was starting to read about Easter philosophy. I, was, I learned about meditation for the first time. And it was just like what I described was like this intense curiosity came into my life. How did I not know about these things? How did this stuff exist? And I didn't even know it was out there in the world. And I, I often I often talk, I've talked to a couple of other psychologists about this. It was like I transformed addictions or I swapped addictions. So I became intensely curious, intensely addicted for want of a better world, about learning Eastern philosophy, the, the mind, psychology, all of these different things. And so it's like I jumped onto a different roller coaster, a much safer and a much better roller coaster. But that's where that's where it really happened for me. But I, on my fourth day clean, there was a huge perspective shift as well, which really drove the direction I went in. And I'll never forget, I, I, I got up that morning and there was something about the world that was just different, wonderfully different. This is how I describe it. And I remember walking out to the farm that morning and it was like, it was, it was a beautiful October dew-soaked morning. I'll never forget it. Blue skies and... I remember the dewdrops on the grass were just like diamonds, like sparkling in, 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 sparkling on the grass. I remember it was a real misty morning as well. But it was like it was like nature. I could feel everything. It was like nature was breathing on me. I'd never really experienced that like it before. And what what I've come to realize was that I, whatever the suffering or whatever happened, I got intensely present. It was like that. My mind went quiet. It was I was forced to stop thinking, and my mind went quiet. And it was like anxiety left me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So that really pushed me on a path to do a degree in psychology where I'm doing the PhD now and why I'm so interested in the relationship between language and emotion, self talk and emotion, because when my mind went quiet, anxiety left me and my mind has gotten busier again that didn't last for too long so I'm not that lucky um, and anxiety normal anxiety has, has come back into my life obviously as well but that sort of set me on a path to to really um to really just push forward and have a purpose in my life and although I have ch- I have had challenges on the way obviously um it gave me a huge advantage really to have that drive to, to, to find out what actually went went, went, went on like what, why didn't I suffer how could I share my suffering with other people these were questions that I was trying to answer from them 
Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, self-talk and the, the power of that. Were there were there kind of key self-talk swaps you made in that time or key, I guess, core beliefs that you held about yourself from the depths of the addiction to this new point where you had to like re- rewrite the narrative that you feed yourself? Definitely. And there was loads of little narratives. I remember there was one tune that was replaying in my head when I was in detox, when, when all of the, the sort of shift was happening. And it was like, it was an awe-inspiring, wow, I have a life again. I couldn't believe I had a life again. I was like, oh my God, I have a life again. I have a chance to live again. This is crazy. And it was a real gratitude for that. But the narrative I have now, which defines every aspect of my life, it's the, it's the first line of, of, of the chapter of my book, actually, is I'm the happiest person I know adversity doesn't stop me it fuels my ability to thrive so that so that that second part of that narrative has come a bit later like adversity doesn't stop me it fuels my ability to thrive but any any challenges any any stumbling blocks i i, I come across now I'm, i always focus on progress and growth and look at a way of learning from it rather than letting it letting it letting it affect me and that would be the huge narrative of my life today try to look at everything from the opposite end of the start the opposite end of the spectrum and see it as a, as a potential learning point instead of a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, and you've had the ultimate experience in that. Um, how do you, how does, how did your relationship with your own vulnerability change? Because I think for, for me, I've talked about this so, so much in this podcast and in my books, but I think I, and I always say this, but I think we're all walking around petrified about our own vulnerability and completely afraid to show it, whether it's in a professional environment or in a relationship. And it's actually like, what's, it's the roadblock to so many, I think, personal issues. And only when, for me, um, when I started to, to kind of, embrace my vulnerability and be willing to to confront it and uh I guess own it did did it change from being something that held me back and made me feel I guess weaker or different to being actually this is kind of my secret power and this is my greatest strength and and if only we could all realize that how much our relationships would improve how much I mean look what where your career is now like where my career is now because I made that change with vulnerability and it, I guess for so long behind the heroin and everything was this deep fear of, of vulnerability 100% and, and there's a couple of layers to that for me like it was the, the male ego nearly afraid to talk about my feelings afraid to admit I have feelings afraid to say I had anxiety or, or I was afraid that, that's what drove me addiction because there's no way would I talk about that stuff but the funny thing is when I got clean I, I would consider myself embracing me, me vulnerabilities embracing me fears and embracing me emotions and I did to an extent and then when I wrote the book, I got into it more. I interviewed me, me family and talked to me family. And there was another huge shift as well. I could feel their pain. I really feel their pain. But I wasn't actually really 100% willing to go there. It's funny. It's, it's funny the timing of this. So I've, I've met someone recently just before COVID kicked in. It's a very, very special person in my life now. And it's helped. She's, she's helped me to see to be vulnerable in a whole new way. Like she sort of created a safe space for me to be completely vulnerable. And it's actually changed my relationships with my family. It's brought it to a new level. It's been completely different. And it's only in the last few months that I understand vulnerability to its truest extent. And it, as you say, Kat, it's, it's a superpower. Like it's allowing me to be, it, it, it's dangerous in itself. Not dangerous is the wrong word, but you're putting yourself out there to be slapped. I'm really wearing my heart and my sleeve in a in a much more bigger way, and I'm feeling my emotions much more. I've nearly been on the on the on the brink of tears on a couple of occasions. Then um, I was doing a, a podcast or a talk with Philly McMahon, and he pushed on me buttons because he knew my story, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm I'm gonna break down here." But it, it is a superpower. It's like it's like I feel it more than I can talk about it. But I just yeah. feel so much better in myself. Like it's it's incredible. How do you feel now when you find yourself in emotional discomfort? 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of embracing it. it it's, 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 the old me is still there. I, I'd love to say he's completely gone. So the, the old me who wants to run away from his emotions is still there to an extent. But I'm catching him a lot more often. Like self-observation would be one of my biggest tools in life. And I'm always observing myself, whether it's the self-talk and feelings. So I, I, I'm catching that now and I'm saying, no, sit with it, let it, let it be there. But there is still an element of that run away, protect yourself. There was a really good friend of mine, um, Yvonne Barnes-Holmes. She's an amazing psychologist um, that I don't meet undergrad with. And she was sort of said to me like that I was in a position where I had to have this sort of protective ego for a while in recovery because if I got vulnerable too quick, I probably would have gone back and relapsed. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a defense mechanism as well that I need to be a little bit like that, but I think I'm ready to completely embrace it. And the next year, I'm excited for the next year of my life to fully embrace my emotions in all contexts. Is there always a fear of relapse? Um, not, not, not for me. Um, and it's really strange. So I, I had a little mini relapse in 2015 and um, where I remember it was, it was a very, it was, I, I got, I started getting obsessed about college. Like I went back to college. I wanted to be the best and I wanted to do brilliant. And I was really, and I was not beating other people. It's been better than who I was yesterday. I'm a very competitive person. And I remember when I was in Minute in 2015, I was in, that's where I went to college. And I remember looking at the, these joint psychiatries and realizing, wow, I'm not losing this profound thing that happened to me this perspective shift I lost I haven't got that light beautiful feeling anymore and I was like oh my god I lost it in unawareness and what I realized as well I, I, I had flu symptoms around the time as well when I was doing deliveries and I started taking sulpidine I started taking a lot of sulpidine mm -hmm. so I know some people wouldn't even think of that as a relapse but for me that was a major relapse like I was playing with opiates again so that was really dangerous and that happened in, in unawareness. So for me, like some people, two things, people think sobriety is the opposite of addiction. For me, two things are the opposite of addiction, awareness and connection. That's what the opposite of addiction is. So a lack of awareness, if I lose that, that could bring me back into addiction and relapse and anxiety. If I ever suffered massively with anxiety, I know that a short-term fix for that would be heroin, obviously. So that would be the danger, but I, I'm fully... I fully believe in the tools that I, that I use. So I don't have any fears because of that. Yeah, I think in so many stories like yours, um, we, we hear so much about these moments of enlightenment, like you say, that, that ultimate moment of presence where you, you were feeling the grass on your feet and, you know, you just have, that, that's what I think um, inspires and motivates people to, to hopefully persevere through those really hard times. But it's also really important, like what you say there is, you're not going to be on this high of, wow, I've, I've just gotten my life back forever. Eventually, time will move on. You'll start to adapt to your new normal. Things will start to stress you out as they would to anyone again. You'll have crappy days. And that's where you need to really be careful with the self-talk and the awareness. Definitely, 100%. And, and I think uh, people often ask me, look, I, 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 with me clients and stuff like that, and I'll say to them, if I have three words for anybody, it's consistency, consistency, consistency. It's putting the work in on a regular basis. And I think that's that it's that preemptive work that protects you from this stuff, but you've got to put in the work. And I think whether it's morning routines, meditation, whatever works for you, exercise, it's keeping yourself on, to, on top of your game. And I think that's really, really important. I presume what you've been through, not a day goes by without thinking of it, but do you ever catch yourself getting worked up or frustrated about what you might consider more trivial day-to-day -day worries or anxieties or stresses and actually find yourself grateful that that's now something that would bother you? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I actually, it's, it's, it's funny. I find myself smiling 
at the inability to to laugh at adversity. It was really strange, uh, Carlos. My book came out on the 27th of March and I was lined up to go on the Late Late Show and it was a big TV PR campaign. Not only did all of that get cancelled because of COVID-19, all of my books got trapped in the warehouse and I couldn't even sell any books. They couldn't even get um, shipped to online delivery services. And I remember just sitting there getting that information. I was hurt in the body. I could feel it in the body. It, but there was, there, was that, there was that space between stimulus and response. And I just started smiling at my ability to let go of what was outside of my control. I was smiling at my ability to not get over to overwhelmed by, by mm-hmm. something that some people will be, will be wallowing in self-pity by. And I was just so grateful. And I remember thinking, this is a better feeling than getting on the bloody Ryan Tuberty show or selling books. Like, this was huge for me. And I was so grateful. It was crazy. And that happens on a very small base at times as well. Like, even in traffic, like someone beeping you off the road or someone getting mad. I'm like, wow, I'm so grateful. I, I don't react like that anymore. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, God, you must be just walking around so zen all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I still have a busy mind, but I'm good yeah. at catching things. That's that's the thing. I, go, I catch things quick. But that's, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's not like you don't um, become a completely different person or someone who struggles with anxiety doesn't just never feel anxiety again. You've learned to work with yourself instead of working against yourself. Definitely, definitely. It's, and, and I still experience anxiety. My, my anxiety always manifests itself around my chest, like a tightness in my chest. And especially I get into public speaking lately and I was mm-hmm. petrified at the start. And even with any big talks, like I always get this tight feeling around my chest and it's, it's loosening more and more over time. But self-observation, as I think I mentioned already, would be mm-hmm. the biggest tool I practice. I'm always observing my body sensations, my feelings and my thoughts. And I just observe it coming and I'll say, oh, there you are. I'll watch yeah. you come and I'll watch you go. And it's like a sense of detachment from the things that used to control my life. Exactly. And, and that kind of anxiety isn't a bad thing. I mean, your body is, your, your body was obviously primed from, from birth to protect you and to say, whoa, maybe, you know, maybe this is a bit risky here. So it's still doing its job and you don't want that part of your body to switch off. You just need to have the, I guess, the, the, the higher part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, the strength there and the resilience there to be able to mediate those, those worries and say, look, this is temporary. This is helping me prepare. And then you, I'm sure you always feel incredible when you step down off the stage. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, and it's, it's it's always before it. It's it's always before the talk. As soon as you get up there, it it just releases. Exactly. And it's like yeah, and it's like you're saying, like it's like that. Re- it's it's that fear of rejection. I think is grounded. Like it's ten thousand years ago, if you were rejected with your ancestors, like you're kicked out of the cave and you're dead. So rejection exactly. is a you is a thing from an evolutionary perspective. It's and that's why anxiety is really really important. Like I think it has a bad label, but it has its use to help us survive. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so when, when you do feel it now, um, if, you, if you were to feel kind of panicky symptoms rising, maybe outside of giving a talk, um, do, what's your go to? Do you have a mantra or the things that you say to yourself or do you do some breathing exercises? Yeah, there's a few things. A lot of things for me will be preemptive stuff. I have a very uh, structured morning routine, which helps me for that. So I prime myself for the day. But if it happens in the moment, I, I think a few deep breaths cannot be underestimated. Like you'll be activating the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system, which is the opposite of your fear system, fear response system, stress response system. And I think people that think because it said so much, a couple of deep breaths, but this works. It physically changes your brain and changes your body. So a couple of deep breaths is a huge thing. And even before I do a talk, I take a couple of deep breaths as well. For, for a mantra that I'd use, and I got this from AA, it's, it's, it's not AA, doesn't own it, but it's like this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Everything passes, good and bad. It will pass, and it's not going to be on my gravestone. That's something I'll always say as well. Like It's not even going to be on my mind 
in two days' time. Don't mind me, gravestone. It's not that big a deal. Get over it. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so now you're you're studying, you've got your undergrad, you're doing your PhD um, in Trinity. It's incredible. Is is this now your passion and, and what is your goal with all of this work that you're doing? I, I think the end goal and, and the sort of change is so I, I, like I life skills, life tools and tactics for life is 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 because I, I, I'm using tools that I know work so well with me and it's sharing them with other people is really my mission. Like, it's, it's like change is possible and I want to show people how to do that. That's sort of my mission in life. Yeah. But specifically looking at the young people today, it's a big mission of mine is to get them to engage, to get them to, to realize that these tools are out there and that what's important is to have a happy life, to have a fulfilled life, a life with purpose and a life with energy. Look, for me, energy is the currency of life and you can you can work on your energy you can work on your happiness and just to get this through to young the younger generation i think that's that's my number one goal to get it through to everybody but i specifically would love to find a way to get the younger generation to engage in this stuff that's a huge goal of mine and i'm i've no doubt that you'll succeed massively with that and, and already are but i'm curious that you have to have something in place there to protect yourself in that you can own you can control what you can control and there's a lot outside of your control in terms of another person might just not ha- might not respond the same way you did. How do you, it's probably a two-part question, how do you, um, I guess, resign yourself to the fact that you won't be able to change the world uh, to the extent that you've changed yourself? And also, now that you have this platform and, pe- and people are, I mean, uh, just because you've shared your vulnerability, that straight away people are resonating with that, they want to share with you their stories. But that is an awful lot for one person, for all those people to be putting on you their stories and asking for your advice. How do you self-protect from that? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. So the, the first part of that question is, so I, I would say that you cannot you cannot change anybody. And a lot of the questions, that's a really um, related question as well, because so many people would send me emails and messages saying, um, my, my mother's an addict, my son's an addict, how can I get them to get out of addiction? And my message is you cannot change anybody. You can plant the seed, but that's all you can do. And I think you've got to look after yourself. So my brothers were in addiction when I got clean and I was trying to preach them. I was trying to give them the tools to show them how to get, how to get clean. But they never listened to me. They nearly went in the opposite direction. But it was only by seeing my actions now that what my brother is a year in recovery only a month ago and he's doing fantastically well. But it was true watching my actions. So I, I don't think you can change people. You can hope maybe to inspire people through your own actions and and, and show, as you were saying, showing your vulnerability, showing people what works, showing people that you're walking, your talk, that you're actually doing what you say you're doing. And I think that's really important as well. And then planting the seeds, like putting the content out there, putting the videos out there and planting those seeds. I think that's, that's the really key piece. But around so many people sending messages and stuff as well, and this is, this is something that was causing anxiety in my life, it was causing stress in my life, because you want to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Only yesterday, I, I, I had a 17-year-old guy from China, I think it was his Chinese writing of all places, his name was in Chinese, and he was saying, like, I'm 17 years old, I'm deep in addiction, can you please help me? It's so hard. It's so difficult. It's so, so difficult. And I know I can't help him, even if I had, like, possibly 10 sessions with him, I probably wouldn't be able to put that kind of work in because he has to change himself yeah. and it's, it's nearly a cry for help and what, what I've resigned myself in doing is, is to just put they put people onto um, the, 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 the content that I've written the videos that I've done 
the online course. And I, I delivered a lot of free material around that as well. Obviously, I'm developing online courses now that are going to be a lot more intricate and I'm going to be charging for them as well. Mm-hmm. And I still do one-to-one sessions as well. If, if, if I don't do many of them because I'm trying to come away from that because I think my time will be better spent doing bigger things and trying to focus on, on, on bit, bigger... Um, reaching bigger more numbers. people. Yeah, reaching more people. Yeah, to time. reach more people. But it's, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. And I think there's a lot of power in saying no and... and it's, it's saying no to, so you can, like, it, I think with Steve Jobs, it's only by saying no that you can focus on what's important in life. And that's really important when you're saying no to helping individual people. But if you can help more people by doing that, you have to weigh up and it gets moral moral implications that as well. It's really tough is, is it, the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, on a much smaller scale, I mean, I would have a lot of people messaging me about, um, you know, very crippling anxiety and, and what, what can I, can I help them? And it's it's so hard because you're not keeping back any secrets. You know, you're sharing everything that, it, whether it's through a podcast or your book or videos or, or putting it on social media, there's no secret that I'm I'm holding on to that people have to come and get from me personally. But if I, I find myself, you know, obviously because I know what it's like to be in that vulnerable position of just wanting someone to tell you it's going to be okay, I, I, I know what they feel like. So I just have this desperate feeling of wanting to drop everything and, and try and, and like wrap myself around this person. But you're one person. And like, I then find myself that I'm depleting. I mean, like they say, you can't pour from an empty cup and you're depleting your resources so much. So it's really important as you go, as you have done this work for yourself now, not to, I guess, completely drain yourself in in, in trying to, to solve the problems of the world because we can only control what we can and we have to relatively kind of let go of the rest. Hundred oh, percent. Something's just at a not. Something's just at a dropping for me. I kind of have to thank you for that. It's like we're not keeping any secrets. That's the whole thing. I think that that that, that that's going to make it so much easier for me now. Like everything, you know, we're not holding on to these little nuggets that we only tell people one to one. Like every you put everything out there. Like I love that idea. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. So for anyone listening now who is um, maybe really feeling the brunt of anxiety and thinking, oh, like if if there was just something I could take to make it go away, I just I just would. I'd rather not feel it. You know what that feels like. What What would you say to that person? Oh, what's the one thing? So, so self observation would be one thing, and and it's it's more intricate. So I don't think we can get into the depths of it here. What I would try to say is that it's okay to feel anxiety. It's normal and it's natural. But the big thing I would say is to stop fighting it because if you fight it, you're only feeding it. There's a great metaphor that I heard for anxiety. It comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's like. You're in a tug of war with the anxiety monster and there's a big pit in the middle of the tug of war. So you're pulling one end of the rope, the monster's pulling the other. But he's much stronger and if you keep on pulling, he's just going to win and pull you into the pit. So what do you do? You drop the rope. Mm -hmm. So the anxiety is still there. The monster's still on the other side of the pit. But when you drop the rope, you stop fighting that that monster and you can do something else to to improve, like meditation, self-observation techniques as well. Nothing good comes quick or easy, so it's it's that consistency piece comes in as well, but believe in the process then as well, that if you keep on practicing the tools that people are talking about, it will work and you will will see improvements. And I suppose you're you know you can speak from experience in in that your your fear that you won't be able to cope with anxiety is is much bigger in maybe in someone's head right now than your actual ability to cope when you when you're willing to sit down and embrace and the feelings and sit with the discomfort you know now that you have proven that you can face those feelings and cope with it and now going forward you know that your ability to cope is always going to be bigger than your fear that you can't definitely definitely and that, that's even self-reinforcing as well because when you have them little mini realizations you're like wow this stuff works and it helps you to practice them tools even more and give you more confidence in them going forward and it's, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill it gets bigger and bigger more powerful more powerful that can happen with negative thinking but it's, it's brilliant because it also happens with positive thinking as well and these kinds of tools 
Amazing. Brian, so for people who want to, to know more, hopefully they won't be <laughs> harassing you with, with messages, but if you've got so many resources there. So what's your website again? So the website is uh, www.brianpenny.com. So it's P-E-N-N-I-E for Penny. And everything is there, like all my social media platforms, my blog, my videos. I'm going to be putting up a section for my online courses there as well and my book link. And the book is widely available online and in stores. And because I have an awful lot of listeners in the UK, actually, more so than I have in Ireland. So it's there as well if they want to get it online. Yeah, it's on it. So go to me where you can get it there on my website and the links to Amazon, the links to the audio book, the ebook, and it's on the audio books on Amazon as well. So every, everything's there, all the different it's on all the major the major publishing platforms. Amazing. Brian, I don't know what to say. I am just I'm so grateful um for your willingness to share everything that you've shared with me and I I think it'll be with me for, for the rest of the day and the weekend and I, I just I'm so I don't know if it's weird to say, but I'm I'm so proud of that for of 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 you as a person to have faced that adversity and come through and not only have helped yourself, but like you're gonna help so many and you already have helped so many people. And even if you just make a difference in one person's life, that's an incredible achievement. Yeah, even just planting planting a seed in one person's life, it's 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 amazing. And really, I just absolutely love the conversation, Caroline. Delighted to, that you invited me on. It was brilliant. Really oh, loved it. Thank you so much for giving me your time, and I I don't doubt that people will um really really appreciate this episode. So wishing you the best of luck um with the book and everything else, and hopefully when we're out of this uh, pandemic, we'll we'll meet in person because I just I feel like maybe we were two souls that were meant to cross paths at some point. I think so, Carolyn. I think so. I'm very best of luck with the, the new arrival as well. I get to, to see when we meet up, we'll see, yeah. the, see the baby as well. Yeah, amazing. yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top 
you can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.